Hey, everybody, this is Steve. I'm glad you could join us for this week's edition of the AC Podcast. Uh, today, we have a very special guest on the line, all the way from sunny California, Chantal Monique Dusson. Monique is, as she is known, is the founder of the Center for Biblical Unity, whose purpose is to lead respectful and Bible centered conversations on race, unity, and justice. Guys, uh, for me, this is a big deal because I actually first reached out to Monique last year, um, but uh, she's been just so busy with lots of requests, just like just like ours. Um, and I think that kind of gives us a bit of a cultural temperature, um, what kind of voice is sought after, so on and so forth. So I'm really happy you could join us, Monique. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on this show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Sorry it took so long, but I am glad to be here. Yeah. Um, your voice is sought after, I think, and we'll talk more about this precisely because for you, this idea of race and, and you know critical race theory and all those things, it's not just some detached intellectual ideas, but it's something that you really lived in. Is that right? Yeah, I think, um, not even I think, I, I generally tell people that this is just the the framework that I grew up under. And mm-hmm. so the the conversation of whiteness or, you know, white, what, what black people, I am black, because I know this is audio only. Um, mm-hmm. I'll put that out there up front. But, you know, the idea that black and brown people need to do certain things or be a certain way either around white people or to be as good as white people was just common mm-hmm. conversation. And so a lot of what I think we see in this new social justice world and from the world of critical race theory is a lot of that same conversation. Okay, so we'll get into that in just a moment. But as we get started, I want to give you a chance to sort of humanize yourself in the eyes, or I guess in our case, in the ears of our listeners. So at the risk of getting too philosophical, who is Monique Dusson? Well, Monique Dusson is really simple. Um, I grew up in an area called South Central Los Angeles. It is um, still and was when I was growing up there, a lower socioeconomic area. I grew up with a single mom and three siblings. I have a brother and two sisters. I'm the oldest. I spent a lot of time, you know, helping to care for my siblings. There's um, between two of my siblings, there's like 14 and 15 years. So there was a good, a good, you know, break. And I was able to help out a lot with that. Mm. Gosh, I am a social service person. So at the heart and core of me is social service. That's absolutely everything that I basically love that in children's ministry. And so I studied at Biola, I studied sociology and wanted to go in to get my MSW. I actually didn't get my MSW, but I've worked in nonprofit social service for probably 20 years, if not a little bit more doing everything from like group home stuff to program management to, you know, senior level leadership at, at different nonprofits. And then I moved overseas and served as a missionary in South Africa for a little over four years and worked with kids who were impacted by drugs, violence, trauma. And I worked with um, the teachers who served them. I did family work as well. 
And, you know, I, I think at the heart of me, it's really just someone who is extremely concerned with justice and extremely concerned um, or extremely compassionate. Like I have just a huge compassionate heart when it comes to the, the ideals of justice and how do we, how do we do justice and do it well? That's why I loved when I was in the world of critical race theory and social justice. It's one of the things that I really appreciated because it gave me a platform to be able to do justice or mm. gave me direction in how to do justice. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that that's, that's who I am. Um, yeah. I still live in Southern California. I don't live in South Central LA anymore. I'm about an hour East of LA proper. And yeah, just wanting to continue the conversation of race, justice, and unity, but from a biblical perspective. You know, um, I, I really appreciate what you said about you, you know, having attended Biola, because I myself am a Biola grad. I did my master's in Christian apologetics at Biola. And so, you know, one of the things that really stuck out to me was that first summer I was there, because the program that I took was a hybrid program. So we did our residency. So in the summertime, we're there for two weeks. We're meeting all of our classmates, our professors and, and everything. And now you have people from all over, right? You have anyone from an anesthesiologist from California to a blogger mom from Wisconsin to a military person from, you know, New Jersey, like everywhere. Um, but I just found it really interesting that these people who would normally have no reason to hang out together we're all here and there's this instant bond and a sense of unity because, well, we're, we're there for a single purpose. We belong to the same spiritual family. And, and so I had a taste of that unity and that really stuck out to me. Now, tell our listeners, I mentioned Center for Biblical Unity earlier. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more, like how did it begin and what is it that you guys do? So I started the Center for Biblical Unity under a lot of resistance. The Lord told me at the end of 2019, Center for Biblical Unity. At that point, I had been having conversations with my ministry partner, Krista Bontrager, who we weren't technically in ministry yet. We were having conversations about a lot of things, about my worldview, about why I chose to believe the, the ways that I was believing and why I believe certain things about white people. You know, and so she would push back and I would push back and we would have these conversations. And then I was working actually at a food pantry and I had an intern who came to, to work one day crying and saying, you know, the black kids and the Hispanic kids were, you know, just completely horrible to white students, treating them horribly and calling for the resignation of the president and certain, um, certain key staff because they were participating in racism mm. but n she couldn't understand what the racism was that that these people were participating in and so having more of an understanding of things like prejudice plus power or um certain kind of key words or key terms like microaggressions and things like that mm. um i was able to see like okay well this is truly what they're talking about now, 
in in hearing her story, I think even more than my conversations with Krista, I began to ask the Lord, like, is this really going to build unity? You know, mm-hmm. there seems like there's something wrong or off. And I just got in, I got in a conversation with the Lord and I started digging into scripture more. I had conversations with people who, um, who grew up Eastern Orthodox from the Coptic tradition to understand like, how would, how would the early church have handled some of these things? And from there, like I said, the Lord had told me, you know, the Center for Biblical Unity. And I said, no, because Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it would do, what that meant. I just had this, this name in my heart. And over, you know, the course of a couple months, we were, well, at this time, Krista and I had been invited to talk about critical race theory to the Women in Apologetics, at, at the Women in Apologetics conference. And we needed like business cards or something to hand people that they could like walk away with. Mm. And Krista was like, you know, you should just go ahead and, you know, be obedient to what the Lord is saying with the Center for Biblical Unity and just make it a thing. And so I did. And that was in February of 2020. But I still had no idea of what it was going to be. I was just like, well, now, you know, I have a business card that I can hand someone. Maybe we'll talk to pastors about, you know, doing biblical unity or biblical justice a couple times a year. I wasn't aware or, you know, because I don't have that kind of foresight that later, you know, within the month, um, Ahmaud Arbery would happen or be released. That video would come out. And then... um. Brianna Taylor would happen and then George Floyd would happen mm-hmm. and we would have people flock to our Facebook page. Yeah. You know, we went from like 39, 40 people to 12 or 13,000 in a wow. couple of months. And it was people who were trying to understand, you know, what is this? What's happening? Why is everyone so angry? And, you know, they can they can see like this George Floyd incident and that not being a godly incident, but understanding like, well, does that mean that I'm racist? That does that mean that I participate in racism everywhere I go? How do I answer some of these questions? What in the world is happening? And we were getting questions from every ethnicity, not just from white people, you mm-hmm. know? So God's timing, thank God is, you know, was perfect. But in in starting CFBU, I did it not with the thought that we would be some, you know, ministry where I'm being asked to speak on podcasts. I had a hope that maybe we could talk about unity from a biblical perspective, And then, you know, the Lord did something that was way beyond what I thought, way beyond what I hoped, not to to say like, I don't want this, but it wasn't necessarily something that I even knew that I wanted or, you know, had thought about. And so that's how Hmm. we started. We just really started from, hey, let's let's do this because we're going to speak at the Women in Apologetics Conference and then the Lord took it over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from that point, I thank God that, that he what for what he's done, because at the Center for Biblical Unity, we're family, we're family first, you know, mm-hmm. before I look at the color of your skin, before I um, look at your, you know, your ethnic and cultural makeup and things like that. If you are a believer, then mm-hmm. that makes us brothers and sisters. And so how do we participate from a familial position? Yeah. We might need to talk about how do we walk in unity? We can talk about racism. Racism does exist. I'm not a denier of that, but we do that from a position of being family. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting. It resonates 
quite deeply with me because I'm married to a Canadian of European descent. And so our two kids are that mix of the European and Asian. Um, I'm Korean, by the way. I'm, I, I'm a, I have an immigrant background. I'm a naturalized citizen in Canada now. So that, that's sort of our makeup in the family. And a number of months ago, last summer, actually, I had an interview with Neil Shenvey. We invited him on the show, talked about it, and he went through some of the st- statistics. And he uh, cited this YouGov a poll where people were asked, regardless of whether you think it should be legal or not, do you think it's morally impermissible to have interracial marriages? And to my shock, even to this day, people, uh, you know, I think something like uh, something close to 25% of Republicans and something like 12% of Democrats would say, yes, it is impermissible to have interracial marriages. So I found myself having to sit around the dinner table and explain to my kids, right, that there are people out there that think what we have around this table is immoral, right? And so that that, that was, um, but when, when I, in, in our family though, like we don't see race in that way. I mean, we recognize that, yes, my wife is of European descent, I'm Korean, and we make comments about that constantly. Uh, you know, sometimes my wife will poke fun at me making ramen noodles first thing in the morning or, you know, using chopsticks or something like that, right? Um, and we have a good laugh about it. But first and foremost, we are family first, right? That That's the baseline. And our identity, our racial identities are subservient to that in a way. It's secondary. So what you say really resonates with me. Our ethnic identities, once we come into Christ, they must become second. Hmm. You know, and, and for a number of reasons, like we are a new creation. We are, um, you know, now a new people. We We come into the family of God. Like he gives us our identity, but even even down to, to the, and I haven't thought about this before, so I'm actually just probably going to thread this out here. But when we think about um, the passage that says that like he must increase and I must decrease, Mm. what, what is that? How do we allow him to increase even in who we are, even in who he says we are and certain parts of us decrease. And like, like I said, I'm a black, I'm black, I'm a black woman and I love being black. Like I really Mm -hmm. do. I, I love all of it and, or most of it, I'll say. Um, and I, that's how I was raised. I was raised to appreciate these things about, you know, my skin tone, my hair, my culture. Mm-hmm. And yet I can't love that so much that that supersedes my identity as a child of God. Mm-hmm. The name that I bear must be his and not the name of my culture. So then a little bit more about CFBU. So we we heard about how it began, but what exactly is it that you do through Center for Biblical Unity? Ooh, it's 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 a mix of things. So <laughs> we um we exist to have respectful conversations about race, unity, and justice, and we do that in a number of ways. So one of the things that we do is we host trainings or we will go out and and 
um, do trainings with leadership teams of churches or Christian organizations. We will train congregations on, you know, what is critical race theory? What is it not? How do we look at issues of race and racism? How do we look at issues of justice and begin to walk a road with people and have conversations that may not actually be easy to have within the broader culture. So we will, you know, train train leadership teams on how to have this conversation with their congregations. We will do question and answer sessions where people in the congregation can ask us questions. We will do experiential exercises so that um, people can practice in real time. You know, how do you have this conversation if this question comes up or if this accusation comes up? Up, how do you handle that? And how do you handle it from a biblical perspective, not responding one in your flesh or two responding according to culture? How do we do this biblically? And so we travel, Kristen and I travel and, you know, we were just in San Jose, Chicago, we'll be in Texas in a couple of weeks. And so we're traveling doing that. And um, in addition to that, in-house, we host book groups because we want to make sure that people are um, getting in touch with first sources and resource to understand what's happening. So we've done everything from like Delgado's book on critical race theory to Eric Mason's Woke Church to Fault Lines by... Um, Vodi Bakum. We were looking at different sources. We will look at things that are completely woke and CRT to things that are completely, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, because these are the books that people are putting forward in culture. You know, we need to, to be equ equipped to have these conversations. If I'm only reading one side of the story, I'm never going to be able to to enter into conversation with people who may disagree with me. I think we mm -hmm. need to be empowered to do both. Okay. So we do that. And then um, every Thursday at six, we have our family meeting, 6 p.m. Pacific. And the family meeting is just a time where people log on to a live stream that I do. And we talk, like I talk about the things that have impacted me in the week so that people can, you know, get to know me. Like, I love how you said it in the beginning, like more of that human, like the human side of who I am, you know, and that's mm -hmm. kind of what that's about. Um, and then people can ask questions and we just kind of chop it up for an hour. Gosh, what else? Do, we're releasing curriculum um, oh. at the end of July. We will have our curriculum called Reconciled. And we just look at how the church can walk in unity. So that's something that we're doing. And there's there's probably more things that I am missing. But yeah. again, it's resourcing people. If you're connected mm -hmm. to our Facebook page at all, um, my ministry partner, Krista, puts out tons of resources, you know, biblically um, sound resources to look at at critical race theory, to look at justice, to look at, you know, the conversations that are being had in our culture right now. So we want to make sure that people are resourced. I really love the way you guys phrase it. It's it's even your live stream and things like that, you call it family meetings, right? And, and, and these there, there seems to be a very kind of intentional effort to emphasize that the human side there of, yeah, and, and this idea of unity, that this is family and things like that. Is that is that really the case? Is that a kind of an intentional thing on your part? Yeah, it's yeah. extremely intentional. I and I, I wanted to build something that gave us all an equal platform, mm -hmm. and so it, I I don't know. Like I just kind of feel like that's what the Lord put in my heart and you know put in Krista's heart is that we do things. I actually think Krista may have come up with the name family meeting. I'm not sure. Um, mm -hmm. 
but we do things intentionally to remind people that we are family first. I'm not going to come at you crazy if you, you know, are truly my family. And if I accidentally do come at you crazy, you're not going to condemn me and throw me away because you know that we're family. We have something at stake. And so we have hard conversations on our Facebook page, you know, threads of conversation. I, I can think of one with a guy called my cousin, Andy, um, and we went back and forth. And at the end of the day, it was okay because we're family and mm. we are going to continue to be family. As long as we both uphold the name of Christ, we are we are going to be family. But that doesn't mean we don't have tough conversations. Right. I feel like we welcome the tough conversations because we are in it together. We have something at stake. If, you, if I don't see you as family, I can do you any kind of way because I don't, I don't have anything at stake with you. You know, I don't know you. I don't care. You know, that that's more of the the attitude I think that people come into it with. And then our defenses are up. And so to me, being family helps us to to enter into a space where I can put my guard down just a bit and know that I can have this conversation or that conversation with you, even though it's a little, you know, difficult. But we are family and we're gonna continue to to push that reality it's not just a model it's a reality i want to change gears a little bit here um like i mentioned earlier you've sort of been down the road of critical race theory if you will so first off how would you define critical race theory because we use that term a lot but i would suspect that there are some different understandings of it uh, maybe perhaps some misconceptions of it uh, so how would you define critical race theory? Well, I want to define it, I think, um, as as close to the, the academic framework, as close to the way that proponents of critical race theory would, so that we understand that we're dealing with the same thing. So it's an analytical tool. It came out of critical legal studies. It was formed in the 80s, and it was it's an analytical tool to look at how um, law and race intersect and how um, issues of racism or issues that impact people of color can be promoted through um, through the legal system, through issues that may not impact white people. Now, when we look at it playing out, I think one of the things that we hear is this term oppressed and oppressor. Mm. I think that that is a, a tangible way that people have began to talk about, you know, critical race theory. It is the looking into society of who are the people who are being oppressed by, um, like legalities within our country through different systems within our country and who are the people who are the quote unquote oppressors or the people in power and in charge. And so that's what critical race theory is. It's, it's an analytical tool to be able to investigate these things. Now, when we take the analytical tool off the shelf and be able and, and start to walk it out, that becomes something different. Mm -hmm. Now in the critical race theory, power and narrative seem to be very central. Um, so would you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? How how do power and narrative play out in, in, in terms of critical race theory? 
Well, power definitely, the way, the way we see power developing or the way that we see power being played out is that there are groups of people within America that have power and groups that don't. The group that does have power would be considered white. Like that that would be the, the, the powered group or the empowered group, the group that you see in government, the group that you see making decisions, that the majority power group would be white um we people of color would be considered to not have power and then narrative plays a huge part in critical race theory because of the storytelling component because of lived experience so this is where a lot of people talk about well my truth the lived Mm -hmm. experience we should be believing people's lived experience and going off of the lived experience of an individual even more than we go off of data or facts Mm -hmm. lived experience and narrative helps us to to understand what is happening within a society not saying that i necessarily believe that but that that is um part of the the tenet of critical race theory now it's not just narrative either is it it's narrative plus power it seems to me because in my experience according to critical race theory the lived experiences of the oppressed seem to take kind of precedence over the lived experience of the oppressors I mean, I think yeah. that's where the term woke comes in because the oppressors or the dominant group, they are oblivious to the kinds of injustices, according to the proponents of critical race theory, of the oppressed people because they, they are able to see the injustice because they experience it, it impacts them, harms them, but the oppressors don't. Would you agree with that? Is it narrative, but also a matter of power along with narrative? I haven't, um, I haven't, I think, put the two and two together, like narrative plus power. I always think of like prejudice plus power, which would be the definition of racism. But I do think that that's a good critique, like narrative plus power, not narrative plus power. I would say narrative plus oppression is what makes something true, Mm -hmm. you know, or makes something worthy of being considered to be true Mm. because narrative plus power gets canceled. Well, that's that lived experience doesn't count because of the place that you sit in power, which I think we're basically saying the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, So then um, I want to get a little bit more into (laughs) your lived experience, if you will. So how did you get into critical race theory? In your profile or on the website, it says that you were kind of you lived in it for about twenty years. Now, is it is it something you kind of consciously subscribe to? Like this is critical race theory, and I'm going to hold to it, or was it more of a subconscious thing? Like uh, uh, you were basically just raised in it. Like what was your experience like with critical race theory? I was just raised in it. Mm. You know, I think a lot of a lot of the conversation today is. Yes, critical race theory, but it also has components of Black liberation theology, especially among Black people or Black Christians. Um, a lot of the, the major Christian voices that you hear that are being accused of um, critical race theory, I think would say that they had no idea of what critical race theory was before George Floyd. And I can say, you know what, I I can actually probably believe that because so much of what we hear um, is a mixture of Black liberation theology. So the idea of whiteness, 
whiteness, although I think it, it's come around and has and has many ties to critical race theory, is actually a term that that James Cone used years before in in like the '60s, and so. I think what we're what we're seeing is an unfolding or an unpacking of black liberation theology with a bit of critical race theory as well. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think that on the streets, you know, and in conversation, personal conversations with friends, you know, as a, a young child, like friends, parents and things that we would overhear that was just general conversation. And so when I got to university, what, happened was that in studying sociology, um, it just put statistical data to the information or to the, the conversation that I was already having or had been having for years. And so the data just supported the claim. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the data was interpreted correctly. It was just the data that I was given. And the, the framework of the critical social theories were never truly threaded through or debated to say that this isn't true. And so, yeah, but it, to your point, I um, keep the critical race theory book by Delgado and Stefancic um, by me just because this is one of the original books mm. for for critical race theory. A lot okay. of people have taken critical race theory and done other things with it and then say, see, well, this isn't critical race theory or, well, this is my version of critical race theory. Critical race theorists, critical race theory proponents disagree about things all the time. I would love to get all of them in the room and say, hey, okay, now what do you believe? Because many will say, well, I believe in this. I don't believe in interest convergence. I do, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't believe in, um, you know, a black white binary. I do, and so mm. getting them to agree is is tough in and of itself. But on the the topic of narrative, um, there is chapter three in this book that talks about legal storytelling and narrative analysis, and this is where you see much of the narrative. Um, the conversation of narrative and storytelling happening in culture today. And it says one premise of legal story storytellers is that members of this country's dominant racial group, which would be white people, cannot easily grasp what it is like to be non-white. Few have what W.E.B. Du Bois described as double consciousness and double consciousness is a whole nother thing. History um. books, Sunday sermons, and even case law contribute to a cultural hegemony that makes it difficult for reformers to make race an issue. And so it goes on just to describe why storytelling is so important and why we must believe the stories of, um, of non-white people or minorities because our stories are almost more true and and um, more impactful than the data. Mm. Okay. But yes, it it does go into like counter storytelling and you know how do we how do we use storytelling to combat things like microaggressions or. Um, structural racism, unconscious discrimination. And again, I know I said it earlier, but being able to read the first sources of, or the original sources of people who 
are proponents of things that we may not agree with is extremely important because then we're able to articulate their position well and say, well, I understand your position and this is still why I uphold, you know, a biblical version. You kind of alluded to this indirectly earlier, but what made you question critical race theory? And I understand your friend Krista also played a big role in all of that. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Krista's a theologian. She has two degrees from Talbot. And she began to push back biblically on what I was upholding more from a personal um, cultural perspective. Now, I've always had a high view of scripture. And so looking at scripture, I, I began to have a hard time you know, kind of navigating or or reconciling, I guess, my beliefs, my personal beliefs and paradigm with the scriptural, like what, what scripture says. And so I got like, I was really just in a conversation with the Lord and really just seeking him and, and being like, okay, God, like, what is this? And as I am praying for Krista and her family to be able to understand their whiteness, their privilege, why they don't see things the same way, or why we don't see things the same way, the Lord began to deal with my heart on my own racism, on upholding social justice and how social justice isn't in line with the historic Christian worldview. Now, could Krista and I still have conversations on places where, um, you know, things were unjust in our country, where racism still is at play? Sure. And we did, because like I said, I'm not saying that racism and injustice don't exist. We just needed to have that conversation from a biblical perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think the Lord was after my heart for, is okay. how are you doing this from a biblical perspective? So yes, Krista played a part, but at the end of the day, I think it's it was my conversations with the Lord, just in prayer and, and being in the scripture of like, okay, this is this doesn't align. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But one thing I wanted to ask you about, now this is something that you were raised in. So I suspect that it was a very difficult transition for you. So what was what would you say was the biggest block in leaving critical race theory behind? And what was it that you were moving towards as you were leaving it behind? Um, the One of the biggest, well, I'll say two of the biggest blocks, two of the biggest blocks um, were what do you do with racism? Because I was like, God, if, if we don't, if we're not talking about it this way, you know, from this perspective, then we're just denying the fact that racism exists, one. And then two, I didn't want to get kicked out of the tribe. Because mm. I feel like there's a tribal narrative, a tribal conversation that's happening. And if you don't go along with that conversation, then you're kicked out of the tribe and you're shunned. Um. To the first point, the Lord has completely opened up a new and better way to talk about racism that includes all people, one. Mm. Two, yes, I did get kicked out of the tribe and get shunned. <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> okay. it's the reality. Um, what was I moving toward? I had no clue. 
I all I knew was that my worldview, my paradigm was completely collapsing and I felt lost and was like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Like, what, <laughs> what in the world is this? You're completely taking everything that I love. I love kids, race, justice, unity. Like these conversations of justice is what I love. And so now you're telling me that this isn't the way to do it, but I don't know any other way to do it. So now what? And I sat in that now what for a while, just now, now what? I have no idea what that's going to be. Even in, you know, starting and doing the paperwork for the Center for Biblical Unity, I was doing paperwork like, okay, so, but now what? You know, I had a business name and I had, you know, our non our nonprofit status, um, like the first part of our nonprofit status completed and all this paperwork in my, you know, in my hands and was like, okay, God, now what? Eventually he showed me what the now what was. And, you know, here we are. And I still, you know, someday sit and I'm like, okay, God, but now what? Like, here we are, mm -hmm. you know, now what? Where would you have us lead your people? Where would you have us go as a family together? What do you want to teach us together? How do you want to develop unity among us together? What, what education should we be offering people together? I'm still learning. You know, this isn't something where I'm like, well, I know everything. I'm just concrete on, you know, on everything. Thing. Hmm. No, it's a thing of, you know, God, where are you leading us? Where are you taking us? Hmm. I and Krista have the 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 privilege of sitting at the head of, of this ministry. And yet there are still people, you know, that we seek out for counsel. We have an advisory council. Um, you know, we have people who speak into our lives because the now what, you know, we want to make sure that that our our next steps are always in line with scripture and God's plan. Mm-hmm. So let's get into that a little bit because you earlier, as you were talking about what made you question critical race theory, you brought up the fact that it just wasn't biblical. There, there was obviously some point of points of conflict there. So let me get into that by asking your business name, if you will, is Center for Biblical Unity. So what do you mean by biblical unity, and how does that differ from what critical race theory offers? Well, critical race theory, I'll start there, is very tribal. And so you are broken up into your tribal categories. I would be, a, you know, I am a Black woman, so I would definitely be in my tribal category of Black. Um, if we look at things like intersectionality, then I'm a, you know, a Black woman, um, a Black woman who's Christian. There are, you know, just different tribal categories that don't necessarily allow us to interact or intersect. But we don't find that in Christianity. In Christianity, my identity is as a child of God first. And if your identity is as a child of God, that makes us family. That means that we have a definite meeting ground. And I'm not stuck behind my ethnic identity. That's, I think, one of the first things that I see with, with critical race theory versus Christianity is how we look at, at identity. I think another thing that, that I see, maybe not so much in Delgado's critical race theory, but in this more current version of critical race theory, is the idea of racism being prejudice plus power. And, you know, I think you probably do catch some of that here, but the idea that, you know, I am not necessarily a racist, I might be prejudiced, but I'm not a racist because I don't have power. I am mm -hmm. black. I don't have power. Now, white people definitely 
are considered racist because they have the power and all white people are going to be considered, you know, racist because of the power dynamics. Um, even if they are racist by complicity, I don't see in scripture the idea that there is a place where one person can't, you know, participate in a particular sin. And so there is an idea that even if I were to walk up to a white person and say horrible things about them because of the color of their skin, I am still prejudiced. I am not racist. Hmm. Which to me just goes, like I said, it goes against scripture. It goes against, um, you know, the, the idea that I can't participate in a certain sin. Um, then there's there's things like that we see in today's more cultural walking out of critical race theory, the idea of like black forgiveness or um, position within within communities, position within the United States. I don't see myself as being oppressed. Now, I think a critical race theorist or you know a social justice person would say, well, you know whether you see it or not, you are. But that isn't what Scripture declares over us. Mm. We live counterculturally. So I don't adopt the narrative of culture. I adopt the narrative of scripture. And I think that critical race theory really invites me to adopt a narrative that is not in line with the, the scriptural view of what is spoken over me by God. Mm. Yeah, it, it sounds to me like you're then going beyond the tribe and you're kind of looking at this equalizer of human condition right this it's it's not about a particular tribe and what they're capable of but it's more about what humans are capable of the sin that they're capable of um i, I resonate with that i always thought that christianity has two great equalizers one being the fact that we're all made in the image of god right at the beginning and the second equalizer is the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So that, that kind of levels the playing ground, uh, whether, you know, you belong to the white tribe or the black tribe or the Asian tribe or whatever other tribe you belong to, that's the great equalizer. And I'm always reminded of Ephesians 2, it says that Jesus himself is our peace and he's actually destroyed the wall of hostility between these two tribes, if you will, the Jews and the Gentiles. I want to dig into a little bit more. I mean, we, we've already kind of talked about this a little bit, but how does critical race theory differ in its diagnosis of the human predicament and the solution that it offers, as opposed to the biblical view of the human predicament and the solution? Well, I think that many... Um, critical race theorists and, and critical race theory as the analytical tool would see whiteness being, you know, part of our, our fundamental problem, would see racism as being part of the fundamental problem mm. for society and culture today, would see um, different systems as being part of our fundamental problem as a society, things that continue to keep people marginalized or oppressed. And you know, in scripture, I see that, like you said, you know, the human condition is what's wrong. It's mm. the fact that we are sinful people. It's the fact that, you know, from the beginning, there was murder, you know, or not mm. necessarily the beginning, but, you know, right after the fall, if you turn to the very next chapter, there's, there's murder, you know, and so we can see 
from the near beginnings that, that there's an issue in the condition of man's heart. We can see slavery. We can see the the mm -hmm. owning of other people. This isn't an issue that came about because, or these aren't issues that came about because of white people, because of whiteness, because of white systems. They are issues that are the condition of people's hearts. When we aren't aware, or when we do not first have that conversation, you know, we miss an entire issue. We miss the, the core of the issue. The core of the issue is that I am sinful, that humanity is sinful. And that, you know, I think it says in um, Genesis, maybe it's the end of Genesis three or beginning of Genesis four, that, that the condition of man, man's heart was wicked and they continue to create new ways to sin, you know, like that's mm. in Genesis. And so if we continue to create new ways of sin and now you move forward thousands of years, like you think we, we didn't perfect our ability to create new ways to sin. You know, the idea that that a group of people would want to oppress, quote unquote, another group of people should not shock anyone. And I'm not saying that white people want to oppress black people. I'm just saying that the idea of oppression in and of itself should not shock humanity or at least the Christian. It shouldn't shock us because we have that story threaded out throughout scripture. Mm -hmm. Would you say that um, in something like the critical race theory or in, in secular philosophies in general, a lot of the times there seems to be this very optimistic view of human nature. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, so in among secular circles, I hear this idea that people are basically good, right? It's the institutions that are the problem. Or if you belong to a minority group, um, and suffering oppression and things like that somehow you know just by the nature of it you can't sin if you will against the dominant group like would you agree with that assessment yeah there to me there's a huge utopia kind of view of of life and of where we're going you know i think a good example of this is ibram kendi in his book not stamped from the beginning but how to be an anti-racist mm. You know, he talks about, you know, if we just, if everyone becomes anti-racist and does all the anti-racist work f throughout all places and all time, then, you know, we'll be good. Well, mm. one, how are you going to get everybody to do that? That's just one. But two, even if everyone does participate in all these anti-racism efforts, do you think that, you know, we're not going to have issues with something else, you know, or that, that we're going to be fixed now because we do anti-racism work? Mm -hmm. because things are equitable if murder is in man's heart like mm. that's what's going to come out if their heart is not transformed through the gospel through jesus we are always going to have these issues no work is going to do away with our sin and we are not regenerated by work so then the only way forward uh from the biblical perspective it starts with then forgiveness of sin would you say so it's not about tearing down the institutions that's primary but the forgiveness of sin and the regenerated heart yes because see when when you come into relationship with jesus and you are discipled and you understand the way to walk you know with the Lord, according to scripture, your heart is transformed. Your mind is renewed. We can tear down all of the institutions. 
and we would still have the same issues. We can tear down every system and we would still have the same problems. If racism was done away with right now in this very moment, somebody in some other way or capacity would do something else. We can become completely anti-racist and still have issues among ourselves because we are, we, we're sinful. We would, we would figure out if racism was done away with today, we would figure out as humans, another tribal um, grouping. So maybe it's all short people. Maybe it's all tall people. Right. But we would yeah. figure out a way to divide again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our time is running out. I mean, I could sit here and talk all day. This has been so wonderful and such a pleasure to talk to you, Monique. Uh, Is there any final comment that you want to make to our listeners? Yes. um, Stay the course. You know, if if you are a historic Christian, stay in that vein. Um, Don't give up. And, you know, also understand that racism and injustice still are issues today. Just make sure that as you're understanding that you're understanding it from a biblical perspective, you know, how do we define our terms? How do we define racism? How do we, how are we defining injustice and things like that? Because without clear definitions, I think um, culture will have us on board with everything is racist and everything is an injustice. And I'm not saying that at all, but I do want people to, to understand that these things are important to talk about because the, the, the condition of man's heart is still wicked, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I'd say, you know, make sure to check out the Center for Biblical Unity at our website, centerforbiblicalunity.com. Um, check out our curriculum, centerforbiblicalunity.com backslash reconciled. And join us on our Facebook or Instagram at Center for Biblical Unity. You can just search that and we will pop up. Yeah. And I also want to throw in Theology Mom, (laughs) Krista, a.k.a. Theology Mom. Man, like these ladies do some tremendous works. So make sure you check out Monique's work, but also Monique works quite frequently with Krista and and they do tremendous work. So make sure you check that out. You just search up, uh, search Theology Mom and you will you will find them. Yeah, um, her website is theologymom.com. And then on Facebook, it's Theology Mom. Check, yes, I definitely kudos and, and second that. Like definitely check out all of all of Krista's work. She just did a live stream last night, how to um like Christian parenting in an age of woke culture. Mm-hmm, That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. And she really just led parents through, you know, what do you do in this current cultural moment where the push is to, you know, have your child be woke. What do we do as parents? And so it was really good. Um, check it out. You can also check her out on YouTube under Theology Mom. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much again, Monique, for joining us on this show. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I wish you every blessing as you step out in faith to do the work of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad that I was able to, to be here. Okay. Well, thank you listeners for joining us on this week's edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, keep grounded in scripture. Hey guys, Troy here. Thanks so much for tuning into the latest episode. 
As always, make sure you like and subscribe on your preferred streaming platform and make sure to interact with us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. As you heard last week, the AC Literary Expedition is full. Our topic is CRT, and it's clear that you guys are really interested in this one. So make sure you go to apologeticscanada.com because you can still register to be put on the wait list to receive the recording of the seminar. As always, love God, love people. See you soon.